everyone. It's the Life of Gem live video podcast. And today we have a special, special treat. We're going a little early because she's on a different time zone. But we have the author of Vessels, a memoir of Borders by Michelle Otero. I'm going to read her bio and then we're going to bring her in. Give us a wave, Michelle. And then she's going to start off with the reading for us. Michelle Otero is the author of Bosque Poems and the essay collection Malinchi's Daughter. She served as the Albuquerque Poet Laureate from 2018 to 2020 and co-edited the forthcoming New Mexico Poetry Anthology 2023, as well as 22 Poems and a Prayer for El Paso, a tribute to victims of the 2019 El Paso shooting and winner of a New Mexico Arizona Book Award. A coach, a community-based artist, and a racial healing practitioner. We're going to talk about that. She is the founder of Arte Sana Creative Consulting, dedicated to creative expression and storytelling as the basis for organizational development and positive social change. Originally from Deming, New Mexico, Otero holds a BA in history from Harvard College and an MFA in creative writing from Vermont College. She is a member of the Macondo Writers Workshop. Welcome, Michelle. I'm so honored to have you. It's great to be here. <laughs> it's such a joy. I love your book. So while people are kind of coming in, if, would you mind reading five to ten minutes of it to start our show? That way people can really hear your voice. People sure. are listening in and watching. Um, so the book is called Me- Vessels, A Memoir of Borders. It's available through Flower Song Press. And I'm going to put the camera on you, but I'm here in the back. Okay, thank you. Um, Hi, it's great to be here. Welcome everyone who's tuning in. Um, So I'm going to read from the first section of the book. The book is written as ceremony and um, it starts in the East, uh, which is the place of um, new beginnings, um, the place where the sun rises. Um, And this is my grandpa and me driving from um, the small town where I was raised in Deming, New Mexico to the hospital to visit my grandmother in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Remedio, almost winter before. Mija, did I ever tell you why I got so sick? Grandpa Tino asked as I drove him an hour east from Deming to the bigger hospital with its lung specialist and oncology department in Las Cruces. My grandma was in critical care this time with pneumonia after too short a recovery from having a lung removed a month and a half earlier. Grandpa and I were on that stretch of Interstate 10 between mountains where the rocky Florida slipped from view and the organs had yet to reveal their jagged peaks. No, I said quietly, mesquite and chamisa blurred past his window. I thought of cottontails sheltering beneath their low canopy, how they respond to threat, how my whole life I'd wanted them to relax on my approach to know I come in peace, to eat from my hand and let me hold them. But always they scattered with my slightest movement. Gentle, gentle, I said, no, grandpa, you never did. By the time we reach the hospital, a nurse is giving grandma a sponge bath and the lung specialist has already made his rounds. So not only do we have to wait to see her, we can't ask the doctor how long she'll be here, how she got pneumonia, what this means for her cancer, how to pace ourselves, to parcel out our energy and hope. In the hall outside her room, Grandpa thrusts his flip phone into my hands, begging, call el psychiatrist, mija, tell him your grandma is sick again, tell him I need to see him. 
A psychiatrist's office feels windowless, even though slats of afternoon light filter through the closed copper blinds next to his desk. The window faces a parking lot. Shadows pass. People whose grandmothers aren't dying, who haven't moved back home because they can't handle sharing a town with bad boyfriend who never really loved them anyway. People who aren't listening to their grandpa tell his psychiatrist, dead people talk to me. There's a black metal file cabinet with chrome handles in the corner opposite the love seat. More file cabinets line the wall behind behind a psychiatrist. Folders and folders locked away. People's stories, their fears, their prognoses and disorders. Two wooden doctor figurines stand on one of the cabinets. Each wears a white lab coat and stethoscope. They smile. She holds a clipboard. He writes a prescription. A psychiatrist doesn't smile. He hardly looks up from the folder on his desk where he writes and writes as though taking dictation. Gen, Senor Moran. I like that a psychiatrist addresses my grandpa with respect, how calling him Senor restores some of the dignity he must lose by having a witness in his therapy sessions. It's always been this way. My grandpa has never been in a doctor's office alone. It's always been grandma with him, asking questions, giving orders, filling out forms, keeping track. Maybe he's the lucky one. Maybe each of us needs someone to bear witness. Grandpa talks without looking at me. I want to stare at him, study him. I want to ask who among the dead talks to him and what they say. The men he killed in the war, some part of grandma that's already crossed over. A month from now, my grandma will be gone and my mom will be the one on this couch. The psychiatrist will tell her that every day is an anniversary for Senor Moran. One trauma, un golpe, bleeds into the next and the next, so he can't separate my grandma's death from the war, from the psych ward, from anything that's ever been hard. My whole life, I've had the sense that he's never really here, that over breakfast, he's tethering a donkey to a post in the Lores. He's running across a field, mortars lighting the night sky. He's separated from his unit. He's four years old, and there's a new baby, and his mother is dead. He's perpetually rain-soaked, swollen, held together with the stuff of earth. And over time, in drought, the memories turn to fine dust, become the air we breathe. I don't know what to do with myself, what I am supposed to do. So I study the posters on the white brick wall behind El Psychiatrist in his dark brown suit and tie. Many El Psychiatrists look out from an oval at the top of each poster. In the pictures, he wears a lab coat like the figurines. Are you depressed? Do you suffer from more than one of the following? I say I'm back home because my grandma is sick, but really, it's my own sickness that has brought me back. I need to be someplace that is in El Paso, where bad boyfriend has his house and his university job, his books, his dog, and our writer friends. I have an empty apartment, a Harvard degree, a dying grandmother, and nothing, nothing to lift me out of the pit in which I find myself. I should be okay, but I'm not, and I don't know how to make myself better. Difficulty sleeping or excessive exhaustion in sleeping too much. I sleep 10, 11 hours a night. I dream I drink a cup of dust. I scoop the bottom with the spoon, hold the cup in both hands, and tilt my head back so I don't waste it. When I was in preschool, Grandpa Tino hardly ever drove. When he did, it was to St. Anne's for Saturday evening mass or to our house to drop off leftover calabacitas or beans because Grandma says your mama's working and doesn't cook now that she has the microwave. 
On these occasions, my grandma sat on the passenger side, conducting with one hand where he should turn, when to slow down or speed up. With the other hand, she dangled a cigarette out the window of their tan Buick Skylark, leaving a trail of smoke that would eventually lead them back home. My grandma would pick me up from preschool while my parents were at work. Sometimes grandpa waited for me at their house with a glass of whole milk and a plate of Oreos from the commissary on a TV tray in the living room. He'd sit on his recliner and I'd sit on the couch and together we'd watch a baseball game, a Western or Lawrence Welk. Sometimes the house was silent and grandpa was nowhere to be seen. Grandma would head straight back to the bed to the bedroom. There's cookies in the cabinet, Michelli, she'd say, and drink milk, no Coke. And I knew by the way she passed in and out of his room, like a note slipped through the door that he was sick and I should not go to him or ask what was wrong. He was like a secret we hid, even from ourselves. I'd look in their cabinets, opening and closing the metal doors with their magnet closures quietly, so Grandma wouldn't catch me snooping. Black olives, sardines in oil, Quaker oats, snow-capped lard, fig newtons for Grandpa, windmill cookies for my mom, Oreos for me. I stood on the bottom shelf to reach the cabinet above the sink where she kept Grandpa's medicines, rising from the contact paper vines, a stand of brown plastic bottles. My grandpa said, Eso, a bayonet. I put the bayonet. I turned my face toward his, enough so he knew I was with him, enough to see his chin quiver before turning back to my hands on the steering wheel, the interstate, the semi-truck approaching in the rearview mirror. I think, oh, Tino, you better hurry. You better get up. I put the blade. My legs feel heavy, heavy, but I jump up. He's still running, that other soldier, so I run. I lift the blade, I see. My grandpa raised his arms into a striking position, an imaginary weapon in his hands. In the car, he trembled, a semi passed us, a stunted yucca on the roadside stood like a disconsol. And I'll stop there for now. Oh my God. <laughs> the voice is so... You kept, you brought him back to life. Oh, he was, um, I mean, <laughs> actually, I just, I learned so much just sitting at their table. Um, I was so lucky to grow up with both sets of grandparents in the same town. And um, when I got older, not when I was a little, little kid, if I went with one of my brothers, I could walk to their house or ride my bike. And then as I, when I was in that middle place between being a little kid and knowing how to drive, um, I could walk or ride my bike to their house. And there was always... Um, you know, they were just always at the table telling stories. And I think that's, um, it's probably what I miss most about both of them. Um, yeah, because they're, they both passed now. Yes, my grandmother died in um, 2004. And I the book kind of starts as she's dying. And then my grandpa died in, um, in 2009. And they're both such a key part of this book. And it must have taken you many years to write this. <laughs> Yes. Many, many years and capture that. But what's so interesting about it is, you know, kind of organizing the book around your grandma and grandpa in some ways. And then your grandpa has this trauma from war and PTSD, which mirrors your own trauma and PTSD from a different experience. And so that's what um, it just resonated so much because trauma, you know, it does running families and it's not like gener I wouldn't call it generational so to speak but there there's the mirroring of that was that intentional yeah i think especially as my grandmother was dying there there's the way that 
um, there's a way that we speak of trauma when people come back from war. And I think mm-hmm. when my grandpa came back, there wasn't really a name for it. It was like, oh, he's sick. Or after World War II, the term was shell shock. And um, and it's only been in more recent years that we've talked about things like PTSD. And, um, and I think there's a way with my grandfather, and I think with many people who have served in war, where their trauma becomes like... Um, almost like a badge or, or like they're, they're seen as heroes. And, and he, he is a hero. He was, you know, those men are heroes. They sacrifice their lives. And I think to speak about it in those terms also um, maybe is a barrier to getting some kind of help because it's like, Oh, your trauma is heroic and it's like lifted up. But I don't know that that actually humanizes it for people. And that's where I really connected with him because, you know, his trauma was from war. Mine was from a family secret, from sexual abuse. And I, and there was a way that it, that it was kept hidden that we couldn't speak about it. And, uh, and I felt like neither one of us was really getting what we needed in terms of like, just being able to talk and being able to, um, being able to like heal from that. Yeah. I, you know, I used to represent veterans in veterans court and um, who were charged with some pretty bad things at times. And they all had all this trauma from war. And, you know, we'd always say, thank you for your service, your heroes, but they didn't feel like heroes necessarily. They were dealing with the reality of war, which can be very ugly and brutal and traumatizing. And many of them had done multiple tours. So I know exactly what you mean about it doesn't really, there's, you know, it's, of course, they're heroes. Of course, we say thank you for your service. But what did that service cost them is really the question. Um, so I want to go towards the end of your book, because something you just say, said uh, triggered this for me. You say in the book on uh, page 215 that we write to heal our wounds. And I know you're a big practitioner of this. You've worked with women in the community to try to use writing to heal their own wounds. And later you say on page uh, 236 in kind of the same section that you didn't know what to do with the broken girl. Mm-hmm. And uh, but then we're kind of starting at the end because in a way it's your beginning because now on page 237, you say my, the first, the book about the salt, I think you're talking, your first book broke it open and maybe this book put it back together. So it's as if your earlier book created this wound by, it was already a wound, but it exposed the wound and created another wound perhaps by exposing the secret, which you needed to do as a survivor. And then this book in a way heals it, heals the, you know, the vessel in a way. And I just thought that was so profound found as a writer from from a craft perspective about why we write and how we write and what is the ultimate it's not really a product but what's the ultimate result is this beautiful book it's so beautiful so talk about how writing your wounds and about healing and about how and why you started this book because it's you know they say me more that trauma memoir I don't like any of those terms addiction memoir I say memoirs and memoirs the mm-hmm. best memoirs are literary memoirs that read uh from a literary sense like you dive into it like I fell into your book and I couldn't get out in a way until I was done I read it straight through twice and I I don't always read books straight through um sometimes I'll have to put a book down if if it's not like you know connecting with me in that kind of immediate sense because I I love it when I just fall when I was a kid I used to fall into a book and disappear 
Same. an escape my whole my whole life in some yeah. ways. So talk about that because it's not you're not writing the book to heal yourself, but you did in a way. Yeah, like and and it wasn't just the writing. Um, yeah. you know, lots of other things as as I allude to here. So like ceremony and therapy, mm-hmm. and yoga and <laughs> meditation and um and all of those things. But I think the writing was um I have this wonderful teacher, although I'll talk a lot about my teachers. So at Vermont College, um, Sue William Silverman, who has has written beautiful memoirs and poetry, um, was one of my mentors at Vermont College of Fine Arts. And um, I think I worked with her, I think my third semester there. And she was like, if you could sit down and explain to me the significance of these events in your lives, in your life, you wouldn't have to write a book you'd have no need to write. Like you're not writing because you have all the answers. You're writing because you have great questions. And, um, and I, I think that was, that was just such a guide to me throughout this. Like, um, so part of it was like, I don't want, I don't want this one story to be the only story in my life. And I, and I think it was the big story when I wrote Malinche's daughter and, and what I'll say about Malinche's daughter that, that came yeah. out 2004. It's a, it's a chapbook and it came out from uh, Momotombo Press, which was at the Institute of Latino Studies at Notre Dame. Um, so Francisco Aragon and uh, Rich Yanez were, Rich was my editor. Francisco is like the main editor <laughs> for the press. Um, and Malinche's daughter was really like, most of that chapbook is in vessels, like most of it is incorporated. And then, you know, and then an 18 year gap between that book and this book. And I think it really took me that long to write, to just continue exploring this question of like, um, one, how do I put things on page on the page? How do I make meaning of it? Um, what are the stories that I'm trying to connect it to? Because there's a lot in this book. It's not just me and my grandparents, but it's also, it's, you know, Mexica deities and Malinche and Cortez. So um, so I think it took a long time to get that. And then also I think just the weight or, or feeling the responsibility of taking care of my loved ones in it too. Um, I I didn't do that as well with Malinche's daughter. I was really scared. I had such a desperate need to write that story and to get it out of my body and just out (laughs) that I, um, I was really clumsy. I made these clumsy attempts at trying to talk to my family. Um, And with this book. It's hard though. It's hard. Yeah, it's hard. There's no blueprint for it. You're talking about family trauma, abuse, all this stuff that can happen in a family, like to expose it. My sisters used to say, why do you always tell the ugly stories? Why don't you tell the pretty stories? I'm like, because all I remember are the ugly ones sometimes. And I'm just begging to get out, you know? know? And I mean, you're dealing with your your siblings and your parents. I mean, talk about that. Like, what do you think you did better in the second book? Was it more of a reconciliation? Were you more healed by then? As opposed to, you know, you had to get that stuff out, you know, yeah. 15, 18 years before, you know? So I think it was, I was more mature as a writer. And then I had um, just, I, I think the, my foundation was stronger, just my foundation yeah. in life. So I actually had a lot of self-care practices in place. Um, just, you know, when I got coaching about it, I, you know, I have a dear friend and colleague named Joe Weston, um, who developed a, a practice called Respectful Confrontation. 
I'm trained in it. <laughs> you know, I actually I coach other people and how to have hard conversations. And I was what like, is that? Like, how do you do respect? Because uh, I'm a lawyer. So I have, uh, I try to do respectful confrontation, yeah. tell my clients stories. I've learned that I get a lot more from prosecutors for my clients with sugar rather than salt. Yeah. And um, it's really helped me become a very good lawyer in some ways and get outside of the box. Um, things, but I haven't been able to do that with my siblings and oh. me and my twin sister fight a lot. And, yeah. I, and I don't know how to do it. Yeah. Um, so it's, um, so, you know, it's a, it's a system. I think our, our definition is it's a system and a practice that gives you the courage, helps you develop the courage and skills to um, stand in your power, speak your truth and get your needs met in a way that doesn't cause harm to yourself or others. Um, so it's really, it's powerful work. And I remember getting some coaching from him and he was like, what if you just printed out one copy per person in your family that you need to talk to and then send it to them, ask them to read it and then have a conversation with them. Um, so it sounded really simple. Um, but that's what I ended up doing. I printed out a copy, mailed it, called everyone ahead of time, and then, um, had, you know, hard conversations. Some of them were text conversations, like just, yeah, great, <laughs> great, no problem. And then others were kind of longer conversations. And, and I think in asking for what I needed, um, some of my framing was like, I, I'll be able to receive this information better if you speak to me about your experience of reading the book, rather than starting with asking me to change things. And, and it might, we might end up in the same place. Like I might change something actually after talking, but um, if I can hear you speak from your heart, that'll be, um, it, it'll, I'll just be able to receive it better. And so it was a lot of like heart to heart challenging conversations. Um, wow. But I will say like, it's, um, it was a real gift to have like, um, to have my mom at the reading and yeah. have, um, you know, to have my, the support of my parents and my siblings. And even though, um, and that was some of the conversation too, like, what if we, what if we didn't have to be ashamed or what if, you know, yeah. what if we could talk about things in a way that is about, you know, that, that isn't about exposure, but is about lightening the load for the next generation and is about, um, maybe telling other people in our community, like it, it's okay to talk about these things. Yeah, and this stuff happens, yeah. especially when kids are, you know, with, you know, it happens in families. And I just think this conversation we're having is so important because usually um, the advice I get from <laughs> writers is do it when they're dead or don't, or fictionalize it. And I have this theory about why, a lot of people of color fictionalize their work. It's because of shame and how hard these conversations are. And, you know, my mother and sisters, at one point I told them, if this is really going to break us up, I'll get, I'll throw the book away. Mm. I'll, I'll, I'm done. I had written it for 12 years and they all re they read the final thing and they're like, you know what? It wasn't, like you've changed a lot in writing this. It's a lot more complex and you give everyone their character. And to me, that was so healing because I honestly would not have published it if it was going to rip apart me and my sisters and my mom. Yeah. Um, I would have just said, okay, maybe I'll turn it into a young adult novel or yeah. something, but they all came to terms. I became a much better writer 
My mom became a much more layered character. So did my sisters. I took out some stuff from my twin. That wasn't my story to tell mm. about her struggles. It's not that I had to focus on me and I, I replaced her with my best friends in the later chapters. Mm. And so I think it's really important that you talk about this because we don't get any advice about how to do this. People just yeah. say, don't let your, don't let your family read it. Well, no, that can work. That can yeah. work. It yeah. can if your family is not nosy, but my family is concha. They are yeah. not going to leave it alone. They're going to find every single story in every single literary journal and they're going to read it. And they're going to watch <laughs> all my readings and my mom's going to come to readings and I want her there. Yeah. But like you said, what if we use it as an opportunity for growth and for shit? putting a light on something to heal it. That's yeah. what one of my professors told me when you, um, when you put a light on something, it's healing. Yeah. And RuPaul says, take what you're most ashamed of and make it your superpower. Mm -hmm. For me, it's my dropout story. Mm -hmm. It's um, my upbringing in some ways. And when I took that as my superpower, and I told everyone I'm a high school dropout, everyone I was a juvenile delinquent, and now I'm a lawyer. And my story has so much more resonance because of my failures. I always thought it was the opposite. I was so ashamed. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And really, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal anymore. Yeah, she stole a few cars and, you know, big deal, you know? <laughs> That's great. <laughs> uh, Francis is here. Um Frances is a professor at Mount San Antonio. She's one of my good friends. I'm having lunch with her tomorrow. So we're, I'm definitely going to talk to her about your book. But Frances writes a lot about family and family trauma too. And she loves the idea of respectful confrontation. Yeah, it's, um, you can just Google respectfulconfrontation.com <laughs> or joeweston.com. <laughs> I'll share those when you share out the link. Um, yeah. And what I really loved about your book, too, is that there is somewhat of a happy ending. I'm a romantic. Um, <laughs> the narrator in the book starts out referencing this bad boyfriend. But by the end, I don't want to give anything away. She's in a much better position relationship wise. And I just thought that was so beautiful. You don't get all the happy endings we wanted in the book. But the family does come together in many ways, does heal themselves. And um people pass and they move on, but that there's this idea that the narrator throughout the book, we're watching her grow and learn. And then by the end, she is in a much better place. And I know the narrator is you, but I always separate them because obviously you can't recreate yourself fully in anything. How do you feel about that? Did you want to give us a little bit of a happy ending? I didn't actually. <laughs> Really, I I owe that happy ending to Jen Gavon, who is like just beautiful um, poet, writer, teacher, mentor. Um, so I sent her. I think when I was on year sixteen of working on the book, she had started her um, kind of one on one coaching practice and reached out and was like, "Do you have a manuscript? And could you use some help?" And I was like, Ugh. I just kind of like gave her like you know, I think I had 120 pages that felt like it had an arc and then like gum wrappers and <laughs> posted notes and index cards. And, and it ended up double that, interestingly yeah, enough. Yeah. yeah. I just sent her everything and, um, and she was like, okay, I've read everything. She's like, I feel like you have a, a book here and here's these other things that you sent. And that feels like it goes here. But she was like, your reader deserves a happy ending. And I was like, oh, that just seems kind of cheesy and oh and then she met an amazing man and they got married and now they're happy and and she said you know 
your reader has been with this character, with this narrator through darkness. They have, you have gone underground, you've taken us underground, you've burrowed out of the ground. And what a beautiful gift it would be to your reader if you could let them know where you ended up. Um, And I think she spoke about the experience of meeting me because she was like, you know, when I met you, I met you in your current incarnation, you know, where you are, you know, you're, you're confident, you're powerful, you have this relationship and family. And, um, and I think your reader deserves some of that because they've paid their dues all the way along. And so I was like, okay, let me have the ending. (laughs) But I think the thing that she said that really sealed it for me was like, at no point in this book, will anybody think, oh my God, if she could just get a man, everything would be better. A hundred percent. She gave you the best advice and that's why I love coaching. And we'll talk about that because I use coaches too occasionally. And I think that she was a hundred percent right. Cause I met you in this, you Mm -hmm. know, iteration of yourself. But what I loved is I got to see the flawed self from earlier, which I love flawed narrative. And you're so self-aware in the book. We always trust you. We Mm -hmm. know you're reliable as far as what you're telling us. You're so open and vulnerable that I was literally crying. Tears were running down my face when I found out you had your happy ending. Because like, damn, if anyone deserves it, she does. And I, I had a feeling that because the bad boyfriend motif that somehow the narrator was going to because it's not about finding a man because that's or a relationship. But if you're going to be in a relationship and you crave that love and we yeah. all deserve love of some kind, whether it's with a partner or a dog or a family member that we take care of, that you're in a good, healthy relationship. Yeah. So for me, that's what I saw it as that you're helping to raise stepchildren and you're getting through all them through all these, you know, parts of their lives and you're paying back your grandparents parenting of you in many ways. And so that's what I saw it as. So I, I don't know if I was like, Oh, she's happy, like 100% happy now. But I was like, No, she's happier. And she deserves to this narrator deserves to be happy because she's been through a lot. Yeah. I, I think the other thing that really helped with that was also thinking of this figure of Koyal Shalki, the, the moon goddess from um, mythology. So, um, so Koyal Shalki is when I first heard about this figure, I thought, oh, the moon goddess, that what a beautiful, <laughs> like what a beautiful, pleasant, peaceful thing to have. And, and reading about her, her story, um, her origin is really violent. So her, um, her brother was the god of war, Huitzilopochtli, and and that's how the book starts off with with that story and, and variations on on her her death. Um, but the, the main story is that her Huitzilopochtli was born fully formed and fully armed. Um, he was protecting their mother, and he, you know, decapitated Koyoshalki, um, dismembered her, and then threw her head into the sky where she became the moon. Um, and then her brothers became um, the stars of the Milky Way. Um, so I was really wow. moved to that story, thinking of like this broken figure. And then um, I think what really helped me to kind of use that that story also as an arc was um, Gloria Ansaldúa's um, writing about the Koyoshauki imperative. And that's one of the epigraphs in the book that um, that the Koyoshauki imperative is to put ourselves back together. That mm. we- broken and we put ourselves back together. And I'm like, if I'm going to start with this figure being broken, then my work of this book, and I think what this book is really about is how we put ourselves back together. 
we remember. Yeah, a hundred percent. And then in turn, help put other people back together mm-hmm. by helping them to heal themselves. Talk about your work in the community um, as a healer and a practitioner of a lot of different things. Um, you obviously are brilliant. And I want to talk about MFAs in a little bit, but I really want to hear more about how you brought women together to heal themselves through storytelling. I think that's beautiful. Yeah. So the, you know, one of the, there's different geographies in this book and one of the really pivotal ones is in Oaxaca, Mexico. And um, I was fortunate enough to, you know, one gift that, um, one gift that that bad relationship gave me was like, Hey, we should apply for Fulbright. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so, and I don't know where it came from, but it was like, you should do writing workshops for women survivors of sexual assault. Mm. And I just, um, I do. So that was the proposal I wrote and I ended up getting it and wow. um, been able to go to Oaxaca. And I think a couple of things happened there. One, finally, I had to live and work and breathe and communicate in Spanish and just get over myself of like, oh, I've got this accent and I didn't grow up speaking it and I don't know how to conjugate verbs. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm Lucy Ricardo always pretending, you know. No, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. Verbs are the hardest part for me. I cannot get, my husband's like, do you know you just told my mom? something in past tense and you didn't even do it in a command. I was like, I don't know. She knows what I'm, I know. she knows what I'm trying to say. <laughs> yeah. So finally I was just like, all That's right. Cool. And what was so beautiful about being there is I think that the folks in my circle at any rate just appreciated that I tried, you know, that maybe I would trip over things, but I was like, I'm going to yeah. ask for help. And, um, and I'm going to try and it was fine, you know, so now I speak Spanish. (laughs) Um, So that was one piece. And then I think, you know, the other piece was um, really just finding support. I think being able to bring together my loves of um, writing, of community, of Mm. women in community and group process or facilitation. Um, So I, I went with the idea of doing workshops for survivors of sexual assault, um, but when I was getting off the ground, um, again, met somebody who gave me great advice and just said, you know, if you if you put like that the workshop is only for survivors of sexual assault, it's going to be hard for people to show up for that. Oh, but yeah. if you say that you are doing a, a, a writing to heal workshop for women, the theme will come up. And I was like, oh, my gosh, that's brilliant. So um so I, that way they don't have to identify and like out themselves necessarily Yeah, where it's yeah. just, just come and I'll meet you where you are. And um, so the theme definitely came up and um, what was great about being there in the time that I was. So, you know, the, the, the Fulbright is nine months, but I applied for an extension for it. So I, you know, was able to stay another three months oh, wow. <clears throat> on the fellowship. And that gave me enough time to do two cycles of the workshop and then to do another cycle of um, working with people who had taken the workshop and then co-facilitating it alongside them so that mm. they still do it even once I was gone. Um, and during that kind of train the trainer and let's, you know, let's do a workshop together. Um, I was able to work with kind of two former workshop participants who were therapists at the state commission on human rights, and they were already working with sexual assault. So we co-facilitated a workshop specifically for that community. Um, you know, but as, but also the theme came up domestic violence, sexual assault, and then just all of the things that we go through as, as human beings and, 
kind of how do we how do we integrate those stories into the larger story of our lives? Um, yeah, and then you were able to the intersection of all of this is you're able to bring some of it into this book mm-hmm. and um, kind of show your growth through that too. Because we do spend a lot of time with this narrator in different parts of her lives. She's kind of you know going through all this stuff. Um, so I love that. And you know, a lot of people when they think of a Fulbright, they think of a writing project per se. But this is a really good example of something you could apply for a Fulbright for that is a really huge need in the community that will intersect with your writing, but you're also giving back to a community. Yeah. And it was, um, it was that that period of time was just such a gift. I, I, Mm. the Fulbright was from 2004 to 2005. Um, my MFA program was a, um, low residency program. So I don't to be on campus. So I just did my second year of the program, like from Oaxaca, mm-hmm. which was great. Um, but now, um, and now I'm able to, I still have a really amazing community of, of writer friends and just dear, like sisters of the heart in Oaxaca, um, wow. who will always be my community. Um, yeah. And then I'm able to go back yeah. well, once a year because, uh, a friend and I um, started another workshop in Oaxaca called Gozo, which is Spanish for joy. And it's uh, it's a creative feast for women and non-binary writers in Oaxaca. So we um, spend a week together. We meet wow. with artists and then we just, it's a generative workshop. And we just did our second year in September. So we'll keep doing that. <laughs> yeah. I love generative workshopping. I do um, It's how I write a lot of my material, mm-hmm. actually. I do yeah. well in that kind of you know, free rights, short free rights, and then you expand them later. Let's talk about the MFA. I'm in a low-res MFA, but I'm on like the seven-year plan. I'm taking one to two classes at a time. It's all online. It's not even a residency. It's not low-res. It's online at University of New Orleans. And I've been really lucky that they're super flexible with me. And I have a full-time job and I have all this other stuff I'm doing. And I've written two books kind of almost before I started, kind of when I was starting so I just do what I want. And I'm like, I'm just taking one class at a time. I'll get through this in like seven years. And, um, you know, I really struggled with whether I, you know, I have a law degree. I have an undergrad. I was like, do I need to take on more debt? So I'm paying for it out of pocket because UNO does a in-state tuition. They're one of the cheaper programs in the country. And so what do you think about having an MFA? You went to a really good program. Your undergrad is obviously from Harvard. Um, you know, I'm not an elitist when it comes to this. I can go either way on it. I think it, um, for me, it's my retirement plan to have this backup kind of career when I retire from public defense and the law. What was your thinking of getting an MFA? And what do you think are the advantages and then the drawbacks as someone who's been through a low-res MFA? I am... Um... So I think for me, the decision to get an MFA was, was really, um, I, I kind of reached this crossroads where I don't even, it was like all through my twenties. I think my twenties were so much about just like bumping into things and being like, Oh, I don't want to do this. And then like, Oh, that hurt. <laughs> so, <laughs> so once I got, me too. <laughs> like, oh. so once I got into my thirties or was approaching my thirties, I was like, I just, I want a radical shift. Mm. Um, I just felt like I wanted to do something creative and it didn't even occur to me that I could be a writer. Um, I had, I have musicians in my family. Um, so I thought, Oh, you know, I, I like to sing. I was in choir in high school. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll just get a second bachelor's degree in voice. And so mm. I 
started taking voice lessons. And what I learned through that was um, I'm not the strongest singer in the program, but I I work hard and I work a little bit on my voice every day. And I could feel the difference in my singing um, just from, from that semester that wow. I, I took it really seriously. But the music building was right next to the English building and the creative writing building at, um, at UT El Paso. And um, so then I just, I met writers. I started doing some generative writing workshops. There's a wonderful um, poet and attorney um, in El Paso named Donna Snyder. Um, she's she's um, left us about mm. a year ago, but she ran this group called Tumble Words. So I would just show up at Tumble Words and write. And then somehow I learned about MFA programs and I thought, well, if it's true that I can be a, become a better singer just by practicing, maybe it's true that I can become a better writer. Maybe it, maybe I didn't have to have a Pulitzer by the time I was 29, or maybe I didn't have to, um, you know, maybe it's not just about talent, which was the story I was telling. Yeah. Um, so that was one piece of it. The other piece was really about, um, about not wanting you know, so I knew that there were these really competitive, prestigious programs, but I had already done that as an undergrad. I'm like, I don't want to go to the of MFA programs. I don't, I don't want to live someplace cold. <laughs> I don't. Yes. I really like being in the Southwest. I don't want to have to go to another state, and um, that's why the MFA, like the low residency, was really appealing to me. Where I can stay where I am, um, I can keep doing what I'm doing. And I felt like it really trained me to be a writer where it just, I, you know, turn in 30 pages of writing a month and you're not going to be in a classroom where people are telling you, are critiquing, you'll get that during the residency, but it was more like having a one-on-one -on -one relationship with somebody who was reading my work yeah. really carefully. Um, so for me, just because I'm a, I'm a good student. <laughs> so yeah, no, me too. I know exactly what you mean. Uh, so it was good for me to be in a program. Um, yeah. And then you're going to do the work because you're, work. you're, you want to please and you're a good student. <laughs> I remember um, I did a bunch of Vonum before I went to Macondo. I did Vonum four times. And I remember David Morrow telling me, and I didn't write for six months because I considered it a um, an insult because I was super insecure about my writing back then. He told me, you're not the best writer. But you're a really hard worker, Juanita. I know you're going to be okay. You're going to get your book done. I know it. And I was like, oh, he's not the best writer, but I have a really good work ethic. Anyone can have a good work ethic, but no, not the kind of work ethic that it takes for this, right? Mm. That work ethic that you had that got you through Harvard and through everything you've dealt with, that's why you were able to finish. I mean, how many years did this take? 18. Yeah. <laughs> you know, my memoir, which is shorter than this, took me 15. Yeah. 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 No, I, I I, know. And a lot of it is growth and you have to be in a different place. You know, uh, Frank McCourt wrote Angel's Ashes when he was 66, mm -hmm. his very first book, yeah. which won the Pulitzer Prize for memoir. Right. And it's all about his childhood. And he's much later looking back on it. And there's a reason the best memoirs, in my opinion, are people looking back typically 10, 15 years later. You need the space and time from the set. Like I'm, I've tried writing about my infertility and my miscarriages and that was 10 years ago and it's not enough time still. I'm mm. like, when am I going to write about this when I'm 80? Like, I don't know, maybe I'll never write about it. But <laughs> there's something to be said for that. And I love that how you describe the MFA program 
and how generative it was and how it helped you and trained you to become a writer. And while you're on that, would you talk a little bit about Macondo and what you got out of Macondo? Because a lot of people don't know about programs like Macondo and Vona and other ones that you can go for a week every summer. And once you're a Macondista, you're a Macondista for life. And uh, you can go every summer and participate and generate material. Yeah, I think Macondo is, um, so it was founded by Sandra Cisneros. And um, my first year was in 2006. So it was right when I finished my oh, wow. MBA. It was right when I had come back from Oaxaca. And um, I think at that time, first year Macondistas were not supposed to be in Sandra's workshop. And I just, when I was filling it out, I was like, well, it's on the sheet. I'm just going to say I want to be in her workshop. And then a, a few of us, they called us like mocosos and mocosas. <laughs> The time they had this little taxonomy um ended up in her workshop and I remember her kind of looking around she's like how'd you get in here <laughs> like I've never met you before and we were like oh no they let us in um and I at the time um I think this was stuff that I had written when I was in, was in graduate school and I, I felt like I was doing a lot of um I think this is the drawback of the MFA it, it really worked yeah. for me and I think at that point I was I had a lot of filigree, that's what she called it, where I just was kind of doing these very like technical, um, there was a lot of technique in my yeah. writing and, um, and heard, I, I cried all the way through her critique of my writing yeah. um, and she was like, you have a lot of, there's a lot in here that's beautiful and intricate and it's all this filigree on your porch but you're not letting me in your front door, much less your basement. She's yeah. like, you have to go to the basement. And I was like, oh. You say that in the book at the end. No, I was like, I've been in the basement for so long. But um, Michelle, I have this theory. It's like artists and singers with their first albums. Why is the Smith's first album the best until so raw and real? And yeah, Morsi's voice is kind of nasally or whatever album you want to take. David Bowie, you know, Ziggy Stardust, whatever. Yeah. Um, it's because the best stories are the most real, the most raw, and the most true. Mm -hmm. I have stories that I had to go back to the original version from 10 years before. Mm -hmm. I had overworked them and added too much filigree and taken out the basement, you know, added all the technique. That shit does not matter. What matters is your vulnerability in, in this book and I'm sure your other book. And um, wow. Wow, that good advice, but heartbreaking when you're when you're in the workshop. <laughs> yeah, it was really like, but but she said, and it wasn't just to me, but it was to everyone in the workshop. She's like, I'm not going to send your work out of here being anything less than excellent. And she's like, because your story deserves that. And and I really, um, I really, I always have that in my head when mm -hmm. I am when I'm coaching other people or when I'm reading other people's work. It's like. What what can I give you that is in the service of your story? And and I yeah. feel like Macondo did that for me. That that was not a generative workshop my first year, okay. uh, and then I I was back this past summer and um, was with Sandra again, and, uh. and, and that was a generative workshop. And it was really um, it was really wonderful to be um, just like in this space again where we, um, you know, we read great books, we read Maud Martha by Gwendolyn Brooks, and then it pulled um, some inspiration from that and did a lot of generative writing. So um, I think to be back in that space, like I, I yeah. hadn't come back since the pandemic and it was our first in-person again since the pandemic to be able to like just 
be around that community, um, to have this level of, um, of rigor and, and also, and of community. So it's that thing of like, I think she said it again too, like, I'm going to be hard on you because your work deserves it. And, and I just, I appreciate that. And, and I think I, I was missing that. I'd really been missing that in my life. So there was like nurturing the, the nurturing and then also the like, okay, like, like you've been nurturing, yeah. you know, like that metaphor yeah. is working, or why don't you develop that? Or just even saying something like David Gura said to you, like, yeah, maybe you're not the best writer, but you're the hardest worker, which can sting, but it's like, wow, thank you for noticing that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And to be honest, I probably I've improved a lot since a, a decade ago, you know, writing is a muscle where, like you said, with singing, you can improve if you work and work and work and work and work and work it yeah. takes many I've been writing for 15 16 years now and I 17 and I really do think I have improved you know if someone wants a piece like an essay I can I can pop that out in a couple of days you know stories still take me forever poetry yeah. is still my you know nemesis and fiction <laughs> don't even go there but you know I mean I really love what you have to say because it's just so down to earth and you know um, when I was at Macondo uh, a few years back, I took a class with Stephanie Elizondo Gris. Oh. I took a, yeah, she was fantastic. Uh, and then a class with Joy Castro. Oh. And they both urged me to bring more of my social activism into my writing, which I ended up doing later. And I don't think I would have done that, but for Macondo. Yeah. I always kept my law and my writing separate, even though it seems so obvious now that the public defense thing would intersect with writing, but yeah. I didn't know how to write about you know, some of the work I do without exposing people or feeling like taking advantage of the communities that I help. But I think that there is something to be said for um, helping other people tell their stories and helping women and communities tell their stories. And so I, I just have to thank you for everything you do for others, as well as for your beautiful writing. Everyone, please get this book. Vessels, a memoir of borders. You can get it on the Flower Song Press website. I love Flower Song Press. Me too. Yes. Mm -hmm. Thank you and Flower Song and all the folks. Yeah. Here. They do so. I mean, they, they published, um, I think it's called City on the Earth, the, um, a bunch of artists that I just love, including my friend, uh, Gina Duran. Mm. And then, um, yeah. And then um, a couple other people I know. A City on the First Floor, what's the name of that book? By um, He's a poet. He's one of my favorite poets right now, um, who I just started reading his work recently. Um, what's his name? I got to give him a shout out. I'll, I'll remember. I just have the worst memory when I try to pull stuff out of my head. Um, but <laughs> Write it all down. <laughs> I just want to tell everyone, please get this book. Um Get this book. Get this book. It's a, such an important book. And do you want to um, read another portion really quick? Yeah, I'll read. Um, I've got, I don't know, I don't have this marked. It's a section about my grandma. Oh, great. Um, after, so my grandma was like just someone who loved us so fiercely <laughs> with everything that that implies. Um, you know, oh, and the book I was referencing just really quick is City yeah. on the Second Floor by Matt Cedillo. That um, came out from Flower Song Press. He's a beautiful poet too. So get that book too while you're out there getting vessels, a memoir of borders. Okay. 
So this is, um, so I'm going to read from um, an essay called Santos, and it's about um, just how, I'm, I'm just, I'm going to read a small section of it, but it's about um, just how my grandpa had this altar that he, it was a dresser that he converted to an altar. And anytime any of us would leave town or go on a trip, we would bring him back something religious. Um, but with my grandma, we would, we would bring her like whatever the booze was, wherever we were going. So like rum or tequila or whatever. So that's, that's the setup for this particular piece. It's called Santos. Okay. Okay. The night my grandma died, my mom, my aunt, and I emptied the contents of her black purse onto the kitchen table. Inside was the plastic baggie she used as a wallet. While my mom and her sister took turns spraying her Estee Lauder sample perfume and applying her lipstick, I opened the baggie. Credit cards for JCPenney, Dillard's, service merchandise, Costco, American Airlines, Visa, salt packets, the card from her mother's funeral, and prayers loosened from a matchbook-sized devotional. The binding had come undone, and the prayers of St. Francis, St. Anthony, St. Jude, and the Blessed Mother mixed in with sugar packets and winner's club IDs from Sunland Park and Isleta Casinos. I found the book's black cloth binding and pieced together the pages. I think of my own altar, a steamer trunk in the corner of my parents' guest room. I think of creating an altar with someone else, a lover, a friend, and how I've always kept something hidden, a pebble turned between my fingers or placed in my shoes. I played rosaries, attended daily mass, offered novenas to St. Jude for my grandma's recovery. St. Jude, patron of lost causes, the St. Abuelitas pray to so their granddaughters won't still be senoritas when they're my age. It's not like I saw a faith in my grandma China others failed to notice. I never heard the prayers she whispered into her pillow at night. When I went to the Basilica and brought back that extra Guadalupe from, from the church, it was a backup gift. But then her birthday came and I had nothing. I thought she wouldn't like it or she might ask why I'd given her grandpa's gift. She unwrapped the santo, pulled it from the brown paper covering, held it in front of her with both hands as though admiring an expensive piece of jewelry. A santito, mija, thank you. When I hugged her, I heard her suck in her breath, felt the slightest tremor in her shoulders. No one ever brings me santos, she said. They give them to your grandpa. All I ever get is alcohol. I love that. That is a great piece. Oh, and we can hear your grandma's voice so profoundly there. And when you say, when you do the dialogue, have you ever thought about performing parts of this? I like, I, I love reading. So I, mm -hmm. I love reading from it. You're very good. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> Not every writer can read and that's okay. Some writers yeah. just, um, they don't perform it the way you do. Yeah. 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 So I would love to like, I, I don't know. I've actually thought of, um, of, of doing, I, I don't know what the options are for doing an audio book. I would love to do that and do the voices for it. And then I have, I don't do a lot of theater, but every now and then I will, I will get pulled into a community theater production. So yeah. I have, yeah, I love doing, I love doing my grandma. <laughs> There's a guy named Carlos Cortez from my area who's in mm -hmm. his 70s and he wrote a book about his family. And he, um, I went to this performance of him doing all the voices. It was like a two hour little one hander. It was just him up there on a stool 
But you know what? If you're a good performer, you can hold the people doing the voices, changing the characters. I would love to see you do this one day as a little one hand or even if it's little passages. Um, you know, I could see it. I could yeah. see it. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well. well, um, Frances Barella says she can't wait to get um the book and that this was a beautiful piece you read. She really appreciates it. So thank you. I want to thank you for coming on. We got it, you gotta come back. I barely even got into like question five. I know so, uh, <laughs> it goes by so fast. <laughs> it does, it does. I want to let everyone know um that next week I have a special Halloween episode. This is my good friend. Christian Livermore, who wrote um, a beautiful book that was blurred by Gino Diaz called We Are Not Okay about poverty. But Christian Livermore is a, a, a Renaissance writer, and she writes a lot of goth kind of uh, Halloween fictiony stuff, too. And she has she, this book just came out this month called The Very Special Dead by MFT Press, Meet for T Press. Christian is a beautiful writer and a professor as well. And um, so she's going to be on next week and we're going to do a special Halloween episode, a little gothy. So um, everyone go out and get Michelle Ortero's book, Vessels, a memoir of borders. I'm going to put this video up on my Life of Gem Facebook page. Um, I'll do a little raffle for see how many people share it. And then I'll give away a copy of her book as well. I thank you for coming on. You were a joy. Stick around real quick in the green room after so we can download the episode. So I make sure it gets to audio. But I just want to say thank you. I'm such a big admirer of your work. Um, I'd love to have you on again when your next book comes out because I'm sure you have one in the works. You are, I mean, a master at writing. You really, uh, you can see the years of craft that you put into this. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, everyone, have a good night. We're going to wave you out. Bye.